On episode 304 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to maximize your tennis potential with coach Paul Anacone. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the show. I hope you're doing well and playing a lot of tennis and improving your tennis game. Uh, lately, I've been playing a good bit of tennis, although unfortunately on Saturday during a doubles match, I sprinted uh, all the way to the net for a drop shot, and I got to it, but when I lunged, then I pulled something. I think it's my adductor probably, and uh, my hamstring is a bit sore as well, so kind of taking it easy, but that just means that I can think about more content to bring to you. And for this episode today, I have a uh, really fun session with Paul Anacone that I previously recorded where we actually took questions from the audience. So it's always super helpful for us to hear you know, real questions from tennis players just like you and I, um, you know, the struggles that they're having and then hearing, you know, the solutions from the top experts in the world like Paul Anacone. And just in case you don't know about Paul, <laughs> he is a former pro tennis player and one of the world's leading coaches and commentators. Um, during his 14 years on tour as a player, Paul won three ATP titles and reached a career high ranking of number 12 in singles. He also won the 1985 Australian Open doubles title. That's the year I was born, actually. Paul, I hope you don't get uh, don't don't feel too old hearing that. But <laughs> um, Paul finished his career with 14 doubles titles. He's also worked with some of the most amazing players ever to pick up a racket, including Roger Federer, Pete Sampras, Tim Henman, and Sloane Stevens, among many others. And he is currently on. Uh, Taylor Fritz's team. So uh, it's really a privilege to have been able to have Paul on the show and you know answering questions live uh, from the audience. So I think you'll get a lot out of this one and we'll launch straight into it right now. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Paul Anacone. Hey everyone, welcome to this live stream for the summit with Paul Anacone. I'm just unbelievably excited to have Paul on live with you all. Um, I've I've had Paul on. He's been so gracious to give us his time previously. We did we've done some interviews, but um, today we've got him on to to answer your questions and to talk about how to maximize your potential as well. So uh, hello to some of the viewers as well. Hello Jerry. Uh, hello Audrey. Uh, looking forward to it from snowy Minnesota. Wow, it's snowing. It's like 80s over here. What's the temperature where you're at in California, Paul? Beautiful day. It's uh, been a long rainy winter, which has been good for the drought. And uh, it's about probably 80 degrees out already. So nice day. Nice, nice. Very nice. And I have to say, I was just on your Instagram and I saw very cool shoes, the Carpe Diem shoes that you, are those yours that you got? I That's top secret. I should have a little contest for people. Let's see if they can <laughs> figure out who's who's seen those before. I want to see if anyone can send in the name to you, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see who, we'll see who responds, and I'll tell you. Uh, I'll tell you whose they are a little bit later in the show. Ooh, okay, okay. Challenge for y'all. I hope that that one of you gets it. So, hello, Linda. Good morning. Can't wait. Thanks in advance, Paul and Maribon. Hi, Maribon and Paul. Hello to you. And thirty-two in Alaska. Wow. So 32. as I'm, yeah, that's far very different from from our temperature. Yeah, that's exactly. crazy. But yes, uh, again, uh, send us your questions and I'll start it off with one of my own. Um, so just kind of a broad question, Paul. I mean, you know, a lot of us, obviously, we yearn to improve, to level up our games, but it seems like we, you know, get stuck at the same level. We're a 4-0 and we've been trying to get to 4-5, but we, we're still, in, we've been in 4-0 for like 10 years. So what in your, 
um, estimation are, are some of the keys to really being able to get to that next level? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Maribon, I think it's really important no matter what level you're at, particularly if you're talking about those levels where you're starting to play sets and club tournaments or whatever, or junior events that along with your coach, you start to understand who you are as a player, like what your style is. Um, what I've seen is a lot of players that are trying to progress aren't clear that, hey, I'm, for example, I'm a great baseliner. So this is what I do well. I move well. I don't miss from the back of the court. And then they spend a ton of time working on coming to the net, for instance. And while it's always good to shore up your weaker sides, you have to be clear about what your identity is. So the biggest thing for me is making sure that you have really good communication with your coach or your teacher um, so that you can have a nice definition in your own mind about who you are as a player. And then once you know that, it's much easier to figure out things to work on and directions to go in. Because as soon as you try to be someone that you're not, your ceiling's going to be a lot lower anyway. So try to know who you are as a player, get your identity, and keep the instruction and the direction really clear and simple once you do know your identity. Try not to make it real complicated um, because it's very easy to start to get too much information and be a little bit paralyzed by the fact that you're thinking about too many things as you go through your progression. Yeah, great points, Paul, as usual. And I mean, you know, obviously people remember you for being a coach of legendary players, but, um, you know, you obviously were also, you know, number 12 in the world. So I was wondering if you could maybe apply what you mentioned to to you, like how, how, you know, describe for the listeners, like, you know, how you identified your game and then how you're able to, you know, progress yourselves to such incredible heights. Yeah. Well, for me, it's a, it's a great example, actually, because you learn best when <laughs> you can hold a mirror up. And, and I think, um, you know, a lot of people don't hold mirrors up and it's very difficult, not only in tennis, but in life, if you're not really able to, you know, look at your pros and cons and figure things out. I had a very unique style where I had to come to the net all the time. I, that's where I was at my best. I moved best up there. I volleyed pretty well, covered the net well, and I was very average at the back of the court. Um, so I, I knew that early on and kind of in the middle of my career, I had a little bit of a hiccup. Um, I was lucky enough to have my brother as my coach, who was not only a great coach, but a great friend. And about halfway through my career, you know, a lot of really prominent tennis minds said, you know, you're doing great. You're top 15 in the world. And but you just got to get better from the back of the court. You got to just start working on your game at the back of the court. So lo and behold, I spent, you know, four to six months really working hard, still competing, but working hard on the back of the court. And then I watched my ranking go from about 20 to about 35. And um, it was really interesting because I couldn't figure it out because I was working so hard. I was trying to get my weaknesses better. And I remember talking to my brother, Steve, about it and, and, uh, you know, and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, he said, yeah, you're, you are. You're hitting the ball much better now. He said, you look a lot better losing now. And so it was really, you know, partial tongue in cheek, but also really reality. It was like, no matter how good I get from the back of the court, I'm going to be average from back there. So don't forget what your foundation is. So it took a really hard dose of reality and a lot of time that I thought was focused in a smart way to train, it took a lot of time away because I focused in the wrong way. So there's a really d big difference between training hard and training smart. So just make sure no matter what your level is that you can know the difference between hard and smart and stick with the smart part because that will get you closer to your ceiling, whatever that ceiling may be. Yeah, just uh, incredible advice here, Paul. I, I could ask you a million questions, but I'm going to hand it over to the audience. So we've got, um, let's see, Gordon here. Could Tim Henman have won Wimbledon if the courts had not been changed to rye grass from Bents and Fescues? Interesting it, one. Yeah, it is. It is. It's really interesting because in 2002... I believe it was 2002, he got to the semis and maybe was up two sets to one against Goran Ibanezovic, the year Ibanezovic won um, and lost. And I think Tim, unfortunately for Tim, was in an era where he did as well as he could for who he was. He was top five in the world. 
And that's an amazing accomplishment. And he was just a little bit of a notch below the Andre Pete level. And unfortunately, he played in an era with a guy named Pete Sampras who was pretty darn good at Wimbledon and lost to Pete a bunch of times in semifinals. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the interesting thing to me was it was about 2002 was the last year where they <clears throat> had their old school, what I call old school grass courts. And it was very peculiar to me that after that, they not only slowed the grass down, as Gordon is mentioning, they also slowed the balls down. The Slazinger balls got a little bit heavier and slower. And that was kind of the beginning of the new era on grass courts. You know, 2002, 2002 Sampras lost, was it 2001 Sampras lost to Roger there. It was still quick. 2002 Sampras lost to George Bastel there. And then after that, it just got slower and heavier. And it became really difficult to play old school grass court tennis. So, Gordon, this is a really long-winded way of saying, do I think he could have won? He absolutely could have. If they, if they kept it quicker, he would have been one of the favorites for the next, you know, probably three to five years. 2004 was arguably one of Tim's best years. Uh, he got back to four in the world. He got to the semis, got to the semis of the French Open or semis of the U.S. Open. And I believe he lost maybe in the round of 16 at Wimbledon um, to Mario Ancic. And he was playing great tennis that year. So if it was a little bit quicker, you know, as Pete stopped playing, as that transition went to the Sampras era, to the Federer era on grass, Roger wasn't quite Roger yet. So Pete would have had a great chance those next few years. Yeah, yeah, very interesting stuff. Great, great history lesson there too. Lynn, good afternoon. I'm on the exercise bike, but listening to you guys. Love to hear that. Good dedication. Let's see here. Charlie, hi, thanks for the invite. Okay. Oh, Gordon has another question. So is there still potentially a place for the servant volleyer? I'm sure you get that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think there is. Um, I, I think that it's important. Again, we talk about identity, right? We talk about knowing what your game is. And Historically, if you look at the last kind of couple of decades, the certain volleyer has gone away and people people all the time ask me why. Uh, I, I'm a big believer that the reason it's gone away is because no one's seen one for the last 20 years, right? We, you know, junior players and young players tend to emulate what they see <clears throat> and what have they seen from the last 20 years? Well, they haven't seen any certain volleyers. So, all of our terrific uh, coaches that are out there are seeing baseline tennis and lateral tennis and absolutely phenomenal baseline and lateral tennis over the last couple of dec decades, but that's all there is. And, and so I think a lot of players from a young age are latching onto that with their coaches and with the teachers, and that's made it really challenging. I mean, look at Maxime Cressy, for instance. Yeah. Maxime Cressy you know, is top 40 in the world. And I don't believe he played in the top two or three at UCLA. And and he's turned himself into a great pro player because I'll go back to our first question. He knows his identity. He's a servant volleyer. He's going to make mistakes, sure. But he's going to make people uncomfortable. And, and no one sees servant volley tennis anymore. So I, I think you absolutely can have a very successful career if you're a servant volleyer. I don't think with the conditions, which are much more homogenized now, slow courts, slow balls, um, different equipment, which makes it easier to return and pass. I don't think you can have an era where you're going to have a Stefan Edberg or a Pat Rafter that serves and volleys every point, and they're going to get to be number one in the world. But I, I think it could be sprinkled in a heck of a lot more than it is. And if you're a terrific athlete, and I was coaching a great athlete that I saw 12, 13, 14 years of age, I would start honing those skills mm. and try to get a balanced version of that because I think you could be real impactful. All right, great stuff, Paul. Um, let's see, Charlie. Paul, you were great. It's fantastic to see players start attacking more. I'm going to skip around a little bit here and come back later. Bruce, could you compare mindset differences between a professional tennis player and a recreational player? Sure. I, I, you know, one thing people don't realize is that you know, no matter where you're playing, everybody feels pressure. 
you know, the recreational pressure, what you feel playing in your club tournaments, it's the same thing that Taylor Fritz feels at Wimbledon or Taylor Fritz feels at his, so pressure is pressure. Um, the biggest mindset, the two different things are players at the professional level tend to make much better shot selection decisions in big moments. And the best players are the best at that. And very rarely will you see a Nadal or a Djokovic choose a bad shot selection at a huge moment. And a lot of that is talent, but a lot of that is discipline as well. So if you go right down the professional ranks, you will see that the players that are just below that level will make more bad shot selection decisions. So filter it down to club tennis. Same things happen with the club players is more often you will see the wrong shot and you tie that into the understanding of what your identity is, right? Most club players probably don't have as clear a picture of what their identity is. So you'll see more panic in their game. And the better you are, the less panic you'll see, the more trust you'll see, the better shot selection you'll see. And then to cap it all off, to be quite frank, the average level of the best players is just better than everybody else. And you can work on that as a club player. Don't strive for perfection. You know, I. it's funny because Mike Russell and I, with Taylor, I'll often talk about, you know, it's easy when you're playing great tennis. Show us what you do on your average days. And to me, that's why Taylor Fritz finished in the top 10 of the world last year. Not because of his great tennis, because of his average tennis. His average tennis won him a lot more matches than it did the year before. And what club players can learn from that is when you play average, accept it. That's how you are most of the time. Don't start to get frustrated and seek perfection, figure out what you can do on that day to manage what's going on on the court. Because remember, all you have to do is play better than the person on the other side of the net. You don't have to play perfect. You just have to play better than that other person and figure out how to manage the environment on that day. And so that would be the biggest, you know, kind of group of things to think about. And as you get better, realize that the best players, when they play average or even when they play poor, and this is one of the things Federer and Sampras, I was always so amazed at both of those guys, their confidence never got dented. You know, they could mm -hmm. play a below par match for them and win 6-4 in the fifth set or struggle to 7-5 in the third. And there was no panic. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like all of a sudden they forgot how to play. They had a day where things were a little bit off, make a couple pragmatic evaluations and move on to the next day. And there's no reason why club players can't that too. Can't do that too. It's a different scale, but it's the same concept. Right, right. Form is uh, temporary. Class is permanent. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a great, great thing to remind yourself about. Uh, let's see, Frank. I have a daughter who plays ambidextrous with two forehands, no backhand. She is 12. I've heard many of the negatives. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this unique style of play at a high performance level. Yes, you know, Frank. That's a great question. Look. All we have is historical references, right? So we've never really seen anyone at the top of the game that's been successful. I've seen a couple uh, young juniors that do it that are real talented. Does it translate at the top of the game? It hasn't yet. So I, I don't know. I don't know where to go with that other than just quantitatively. We've seen that it hasn't happened yet. Now in today's game, where it's more baseline oriented and it's more lateral tennis, you probably have a little bit more time. But that being said, the players hit the ball bigger. So from the back of the court, although it is the back of the court, points are happening a lot more quickly. So, Frank, I would only be able to make a guess. Um, and this is probably a great question for an expert in sports science that does all kind of reaction time statistical stuff to figure out if you can do it. Uh, but look, I hope for your sake it translate and I'd love to see your daughter out on the tour. I think it's a great, great, uh, it's a great topic to talk about. And I think it's a great thing for people to see, but I just don't know. I wish I had the definitive answer, but I don't. And no worries. Yeah, Frank, I think um, when I have Dr. Mark Kovacs on again, uh, he might be a good person to talk about. That's great. Uh, yeah, Mark, yeah. Yeah, Mark would be great to ask about that. Yeah, definitely. I'll keep that in mind. Thanks, Frank. Um, let's see. Uh, Barry, I played D1 slash ITF back in the day. Very nice. Uh, worked with Jim Lair for a bit. It's really cool. Uh, now 55, caught the bug again after after 20 years off. Wow. What are suggestions for getting back into competition from a mental perspective? 
Well, Dr. Lear would know a heck of a lot better than me, but, um, you know, the biggest thing is you have to accept progressions. You know, a lot of stuff that we do is on memory. So you're going to have great memory from 20 years ago, how well you played and probably how differently your body acted and reacted. And, and uh, I can tell you, Barry, I'm a few years older than you. And boy, does my body feel different now than it did 20 years ago. So you have to kind of frame your new environment physically first to go through expectations and progressions and understand it's going to take a little bit of time to get comfortable and, and make sure I would say physically to be careful at the beginning to make sure you build up a good base both physically and also technically and strategically with your tennis game. And then after that, um, in terms of a mental perspective, just the stuff we've been talking about, you know, good shot selections, rally tolerance, mental discipline about doing the right things at the right moment, figure out what your identity is, recreate your own identity as a tennis player, because at 55, it's going to be a little bit different. And then try to structure your practice and your understanding and improvements around what that identity is and kind of how to move forward from there. So stepping stones and building blocks, and then just a lot of patience. But um, I think the mental perspective really has to be flushed out so that you almost have to try to forget what you were and accept what you are and who you are now. Because it can be different. It's not going to be better or worse, just different. Right, right. right. Love that. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Charlie, how do you train players to read the other player when they are put into a compromised position? I know it's instinctive, but there has to be a good drill for emphasizing this. Yeah, well, I, th I think the pro players, it's a very different kind of cup of tea. And and this is a lot of the conversations that Mike Russell and I've had with Taylor Fritz is that he overthinks sometimes what the other guy's going to do, you know, and, and this is one of the things that I learned actually from Roger and Sampras and Tim Henman. These guys were amazing about, again, their identity. What do I do well? Okay. What do I do well? Tim Henman. Okay. And this is when I started with Tim Henman in 2000. And four, this is one of his issues is he had dropped to about 40 in the world and he'd forgotten what his identity was. And he was working really hard and playing at the back of the court. And, you know, and I remember talking to him in the fall of 2003 and he was saying, you know, what's what's going on? Why aren't I? I seem to be working hard. I'm doing all these things. And we had a really simple conversation. And, and I said, so how, what do you think? And he, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, tell me what you do best. And he said, I volley really well. I've got a good backhand. I move great at the net. I defend from the back of the court. I'm solid from the back of the court. And I said, okay, stop right there. I said, so you're a great volleyer, in my opinion, probably at that time, the best volleyer on the tour. Um, and I think one of the best volleyers of all time. So to me, it's pretty simple. Everything we do should be figured out towards how do I finish as many points as possible at the net? How do I do that? And so we simply based all of his training about doing that for a number of months. And then he got re kind of committed to that style of play and that understanding. Now, to take it towards your question now is Tim knows who he is. So he knows who he is as a player. That's concrete in his mind. So then it's like, okay, you're playing Andy Roddick today. So you're playing Andy. He's got a huge serve. He's got a huge forehand. Here's what I do great. I finish at the net. So how, how do I exploit that? Okay, well, every second serve I get, I'm going to make him work. I'm going to try to keep balls low to his backhand, and I'm going to find ways to get to the net. If I go to his forehand side, I got to go strong to open up the backhand to come into the net. That's kind of, uh, you know, that's kind of an analogy of what the conversation would be. First, identify yourself, then plug it into the other player. So that's what you should do at the club level, too and the pro level, and the college level. It shouldn't be, oh, this guy does this, so, okay, so he's a great baseliner, so I just have to make sure I never miss from the back of the court. Well, I'm terrible from the back of the court. Why, why would I want to stay back there? So right. make sure you plug in what you do well to what they don't do so well. That's the equation. So don't go, and I think it's really important with young players too, don't go too far to the other end of the spectrum because then they forget totally who they are. You know, and Taylor's a top 10 player in the world. And there are a lot of times where he's talking about stuff where Mike and I have to say, dude, that's not your game at all. <laughs> if I see you do that four times, we're going to put our hands over our eyes and just start shaking our head. That's not who you are. You're a power player, big serve, 
great forehand. When it's up above your waist, I want you to crush it. You can do a lot of things with your two-hander and your first, first strike tennis guy. That's what I want to see you do today. Now let's plug it into what this guy's bad at, not the other way around. So hopefully that yeah. makes sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. It kind of reminds me of when I interviewed a series of professional players and I asked them you know, about, do, do you focus on your strengths or your opponent's weaknesses or both? And I actually got... You know, most of them said that I primarily focus on my strengths. That's great. Uh, which is exactly what you're talking about, you know, and then obviously factor in the weaknesses. That's that's also extremely helpful, but prioritizing their strengths. Um, so yeah, that's great. Um, David uh, says, looking back, is there anything you would have done differently to preserve your body over the long haul? <laughs> how much how much time do you have, David? I mean, we only have a few minutes here. I don't know how much time yeah. you have, but... Yeah, look, I mean, just like everything else in life, the sports science has evolved so much. I mean, you know, back when I played, almost no one traveled with a physio and almost no one traveled with a strength and conditioning coach and you had your coach there. And so basically my brother was tortured enough as he coached me to try to convince me to even stretch. I hated stretch. And so if I did a better job taking care of my body, I think ultimately my career would have lasted longer. And I wouldn't be in so much pain today, for sure. I mean, herniated discs twice once the second one kind of ended my career. Um, two surgeries on my one on each foot, one on my elbow, you know, degenerative arthritis in my back, um, neck, bulging discs. So all these things, some of it's going to happen anyway, just out of the evolution of being a pro athlete. But now when you see what these guys do and how much rest recovery plays into what they're supposed to do it's amazing um so yeah i mean the list is long and not so glorious david but there's a lot of things i would have done differently witness history at roland garros where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground tennis channel plus is your place to watch stream every court from your phone or smart tv live in hd Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I hesitate to bring this question up. <laughs> That's not a good way to start, Maribon. That's really not <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. So the question of you, I don't know if you see it here, but from Jason, who is the goat in your book? Yeah. I mean, people ask me all the time and it's, okay. I think it's, a, I think it's a, I don't, shouldn't hesitate at all. I think it's a great okay. conversation point. I, I don't ever look, I don't believe in it uh, personally because I okay. think it's impossible. And that's why when I'm on tennis channel, whatever, I, I really don't mean to hedge my bets. I just don't believe in it because the ears are totally different. Um, back in the dark ages when, you know, Pete was trying to break Roy Emerson's record of 12 majors. Three of the four majors when Roy played was on grass courts. So how many would Pete have won if there's three out of four were on grass courts? Okay. And, and now, you know, so you look at that. Um, and now when Pete, people say, oh, wow, these guys back in those, those days wouldn't be able to do anything against Novak, Rafa, and Roger. Well, I don't know that because they didn't develop through the same way those three guys developed. I And philosophically, I believe that there's an inherent mental and physical, for lack of a better term, gene that great athletes have. And if you put them in any era, they're going to be amazing. I, I could make an argument that if Bjorn Borg was in a different era and he didn't stop at 26, he would have Rafa Nadal type numbers at Roland Garros. Maybe not, you know, 9 million titles, but he'd have more than what he has. And it would be close to where Rafa is because he was so good on clay back then and people mm -hmm. couldn't win games. And he was a 5'11", incredible athlete. So if he had all of the modern strength and conditioning and training and emotional, mental mm -hmm. stuff that would have allowed him perhaps to play longer, he would, maybe he would have 20 majors. Maybe he would have you know, 10 to 15 Roland Garroses. You could argue that. So I always steer clear of the GOAT. It's really tangible, the GOAT conversation, it's really tangible to look at who the most accomplished is. And, you know, right now, you know, Rafa and Novak lead that conversation with Roger right behind because they're the most accomplished. They've got the most things that you can look at quantitatively 
Um, and I'm going to digress a little bit because I think one of the one, a conversation that I would love to hear, and I'm not qualified to do it, but I would love to hear a roundtable. And I've got some qualified folks at Tennis Channel that I would love to hear Jim Courier and Martina Navratilova and Lindsay Davenport sit down and have a moderator to talk about the differences of greatness in eras. Because I would argue that today, if you're great, if you're great, the greatest of the great, the top 1%, one, I'm sorry, the top one-tenth of 1%, it's easier to dominate. Because if you're in the top one-tenth of 1%, there's far fewer things you have to adjust to in today's professional game than you did 20 years ago. In today's professional game, the courts are homo homogenized, the surfaces, the balls, you can play more clay court tennis on a grass court. You can play more lateral tennis overall. There's no serve and volleyers. We've talked about it. So there are a lot less variables in terms of the conditions. So you could make a point or a discussion point that maybe if you're in that top one-tenth of a percent or top whatever, half a percent, it's easier in, to, to dominate. You can make that point. Is it true? I don't know, but I would love to hear the conversation with the all-time greats. You know, I would love to hear it from Martina and Jim and, and you know, whatever, the Sampras's and the Andres and the Steffi Graps and, and today's game as well, the today's greats. Because I remember the first time um, I went to, when I was coaching Roger and and Pete, you know, and I are, are good friends, and, and Pete said, you have to help me understand how the hell is everyone staying back at Wimbledon? Well, what's going on at Wimbledon and Rogers were beating everybody from the back of the court. And funnily enough, Roger was coming through town. So we had dinner one night with our wives and it was so great to be a fly on the wall. I just was able to sit there and Pete was firing questions at Roger just about stuff like that. And, you know, and Roger said, look, when I, you know, Pete said, when I, when we played, you came in all the time, you were coming in, you were a net rusher and now you're staying back on grass and you've won Wimbledon. I think at that point you've won it, you know, four or five times. And what's, what's the deal? And Roger said, well, everybody stays back now. And it's just, I'm more comfortable doing that because I think I'm just a little better at that than they are. So I don't have to come in. So he evolved into that situation. You know, he evolved into everyone staying back more and not serving and volleying on the grass court. So my point is, as the environment changes, so does the challenges for the players, whether they're great players or average players or whatever. And in today's game, the great players, I mean, for the last 20 years, man, we've been so spoiled with Serena and Venus and Roger and Rafa and Novak, just to name a few. Um, but I would say that they've had to adjust their styles less. I mean, I don't think there's any difference. I don't think that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. Their styles have had to adjust less. What they've had to adjust is the movement on different surfaces and mm. court positioning, but their styles haven't had to change so much. And so in that case, I actually think that you could have a great discussion. And I would love just to hear the all-time greats who have seen it and lived it to hear what they say, because I find it very interesting. Yeah, I'm sure they'll put that together, you know, when you ask, you know. Yeah. Take him a few days. You're, you're the man over there. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's see. Uh, sorry, Colin. Why don't any pros use both a double-handed backhand and a single-handed backhand? Not counting the slice backhand. Because I, I think it because of the mechanics of it are so different. Um, it is a good question, Colin. But the mechanics of a topspin backhand is very different if it's one-handed or two. I mean, the best two-handed backhands. The, the um, non-dominant hand, so if you're a right-hander, the best two-handed backhands have a dominant left hand and hit it more like a forehand. So if you take that hand away and you try to do that with your right hand, it's a very different motion and takes a lot more strength and racket head acceleration than a slice backhand, which is a much more subtle and neutral or defensive shot can be offensive, but it's more neutral or defensive. So think of it that way. So if I'm hitting a two-hander and I'm doing I'm doing 
this with my left hand, I'm actually hitting a left-handed forehand and then releasing the left hand as if it's a left-handed forehand, that's very different than trying to release and turn the arm over with the right hand. So it's a really different mechanical shot, biomechanical shot. That's another one um, that you can ask Mark when he comes in, Mirabon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely will. Yeah, I tried switching to a one-hander. It was very different. I thought I had it. Yeah, yeah. I was on the wall for like three, four weeks, and I felt good that I played, and I said, what the heck? I think I need to just stick with the two-hander. Uh, was, it was a good experiment, though. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, Seth, isn't it true that you are actually responsible for Roger's saber technique? I remember you as a great chip and charger off the return in your day. Um, look, I wish I could... I. I wish I could take credit for that. Um, and one of the great, uh, great blessings about coaching people that have more talent oozing out of one pore than most of us can ever imagine is they can do things that we only dream about. And and so Roger would do that in practice a lot. And I, I, I was more about him chipping and charging than literally half volleying and coming to the net. Yeah. And and the half volleying and come to the net is something that I don't, you know, I'm 99.9% sure that it never won him a match, but it created doubt and it created um, just variation. So I, I love the fact that he used it and I love the fact that it came into play, but I was really more about either the chipping coming in and hitting and coming in. So I would love to take credit for that, but unfortunately I can't. <laughs> All right. Uh, very humble. Uh, Jason, what do Pete and Roger think about when they're under pressure? Very good question. That uh, is a great question. And just like I said a few questions ago is everybody feels pressure. You mm -hmm. know, they all feel pressure and they all digest it in different ways. But the thing about the best players is they tend to trust their identity and themselves in big moments. They know what they're capable of doing and they just trust it and they buy into it. And so that's how they're able to back themselves. So perhaps what they do is they play their style of game, but maybe go to a little bit more of conservative spots, conservative locations. But they feel pressure. They feel pressure. Um, I'll give you a great example of it. When Pete beat Pat Rafter in the finals of Wimbledon in 2000, 2000 when he broke the record, he lost the first set and he was down 4-1 in the tiebreak in the second and somehow came back, got it to 6-5, I believe. I believe it was 6-5. And at 6-5, I was um I saw this last year and I was on my I was actually working out and I was just watching it as a replay. It was on Tennis Channel. And at 6-5, Pete hit a kick serve first and serve and volleyed. And I, I so didn't remember that. And here's the guy with one of the greatest serves of all time. And he hit a kick serve first and one of the greatest second serves of all time. And so I picked up the phone and I said, dude, guess what I'm doing? He goes, what? I said, well, I'm watching uh, the smash. And I said, I totally forgot what happened at 6-5. And he said, I forgot what happened. And I said, you had a kick serve first. <laughs> I said, why did you do that? And he goes, because I was nervous. I was bringing nervous. And he said, so there you go right there. So everybody's nervous and they digest it and it processes in this, in a different way. And uh, he ended up winning that point and also the match. But that uh, that tells you that they all process things the same way, but they do it in a way that actually they trust under pressure a little more than we do. And that's a, that's a, that's a big difference how they process that pressure. Yeah, most definitely. No. Um, oh, congrats to Taylor. Well done. Uh, I yeah, saw that you, you won. Yeah. Very good win. Um, let's see here. Um, Seth, didn't Murphy Jensen serve with both hands? Is that right? Luke, Luke Jensen did. Luke did. Okay. Luke Jensen did. Yeah. And, and Got it. so he, you know, he did, and he was able to play on the tour, um, and, you know, so that's one person that served with both hands. Um, and it was, it's, look, it, it's a great, it's a great asset to have. Um, and it's a great, uh, it, it's a great way to 
give a player different looks in a match, but forehands and backhands, as was asked earlier, is different too. So I don't know. It's a real, it's a great conversation. It's a great conversation. Yeah, most definitely. So we'll just take a couple more questions. Um, Paul has a tight schedule, uh, as I would expect. <laughs> um, let's see here. Um, uh, the three trick shotters. My son plays competitive under 14s in Canada. He has a one-handed backhand now for the last one and a half years. Do you still think the one-handed backhand is still relevant in today's game? I absolutely think it's relevant. You know, I, I think it's much easier to learn to volley if you have a one-handed backhand. I think it's much easier mm -hmm. to learn the slice. Um, unfortunately, those aren't two areas that are prominent in today's game, though, right? So what, what things are prominent are lateral points from the back of the court and returns a serve. And in those two areas, it's easier to have a two-hander. So if I were teaching a young player today, I would probably teach them a two-handed backhand and try to make sure I focused enough so they could hit a good slice and also volley well. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely relevant. Look, there are some great players with one-handers still, but um, it's just more difficult to execute it. Artistically, selfishly, I think it's prettier to watch a one-hander, sure. a beautiful one-hander, but I think the two-handers tend to be a little bit more relevant in today's game, but it can be relevant if you structure it the right way, that one-hander. Yeah, it's interesting looking at the top 10. I mean, I guess it's just Sitsipas that has a one-hander, right? So, yeah. Right, and yeah, and he doesn't even have a good slice. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, um, at, at, at a professional level, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's not, it's not a bad slice. It's just not a good slice. Yeah, I'm looking at the rankings too, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Oh, interesting. Um so role models wise, you don't have too many. <laughs> Is there, I think I think there's only one in the top twenty. Uh, there's only yeah in the top twenty. There's only there's right. three. There's three in the top thirty. Evans, yeah, Shapovalov, yeah. and oh, Sitsipas. I think. Wow. That's yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that is, that's very interesting. Wow. Um, let's see, I'm taking the time here. Uh, Paul, why do you think the men's versus women's game is so different with the exception of a few women? Why do top women players not last? I think the men's and women's game is different because it's a different game. Just like men's and women's basketball is different and men's and women's soccer is different. Everything's, it's different. Neither is better or worse. They're just different. I mean, I guess the most, Interesting question is, with the exception of a few women, why do top women players not last? I think part of that is because we were spoiled in a time of Serena and Venus and Maria, right? I, I think, you know, and then before that, Steffi Graf and, and Lindsay and Martina, you know, we, we have had dominance. And I think, you know, right now, Iga Sviantek has done an amazing job. You know, she's done an amazing job being ranked number one in the world and her weeks are accumulating. So she's on track right now to have a pretty significantly dominant role if she keeps it going. But there's been a lot of women first-time and one-time major winners. And why is that? Well, again, we only know what we've seen in the past. So whenever you see someone that dominates, it's a really intriguing question. Why don't we have that? So I don't know the answer to it. I, I think that my instinct is the players are pretty equal. There's a lot of parity. There's a lot of capability and ability between, you know, one and 30 in the world. And, and I think that is exciting. I think most people that are fans prefer to hold on to superstars. It's more, you know, because they, they transcend the sport outside of what it is, which is always a great topic. But I personally think it's really exciting because I love to see the new names. And I love to see, most importantly, as a player and as a coach, I love to see how they react under pressure. So I love to see those new names when they get to the semis and finals of majors. Because all we see when we watch is, oh, they missed that or, oh, they made that. But when next time you see that and you have an emotional reaction, ask yourself, why do you think they missed that? And that's going to that's gonna help you learn about what's going on and what's going on with pressure. And it's probably going to help you learn how you can deal with it as well when you're playing in your club tournaments. 
Yeah, yeah, great advice. Um, and yeah, it's super fun to watch. Like I remember seeing Kenan, you know, our first time in the final. Uh, very cool, and she did great. Let's see. So last question here is, can you talk about the dynamics of coaching pros? On one hand, they are your boss. On the other, you are the coach who needs to have authority. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's complicated, you know, and, and I think it's different than other professional sports. They pay us for, to tell, for us to tell them what to do. That doesn't make much sense, does it? Especially if you, especially if you have different philosophies. And, and I think that's why it's a really complicated um, dynamic. And, you know, I guess what I would say for people is, you know, what I, one of the things I learned from my late father that was really important as I transitioned in life was you always want to hire the people that don't need the job because they can be really honest with you. I'm talking about like when we were talking about coaching and, you know, do you need this payday? If you don't do it, are you going to be in dire straits? You know, you always want to be careful about how you evaluate someone that's helping you. And that's why you see a lot of people that are yes people. And that's why you see a lot of young superstars that have huge, huge contingencies around them. Not all, but sometimes they're just people that that they like to hang out with. And that's great, but be careful about who's guiding you. That That's very slippery and that's really difficult to do. And I can tell you for me firsthand, I you know, I was a top 15 player. And when I started coaching Pete Sampras, I, you know, I had to understand how to do that. How was I able to get my point across and be a constructively critical person, but with his best interests at heart. And and Tim Gullickson, the late great Tim Gullickson helped educate me how to do that. You know, how, you know, how do I tell him, I understand what you're trying to do here, but tell me why, you know, and, and then you have a conversation to try to get your point across. And ultimately, as a coach, a professional coach in particular, you're only as good as how much your player buys into the philosophy. So, for instance, when people say, who should coach Nick Kyrgios? I'm like, I have no idea. Maybe a guy that works at McDonald's. I mean, I have no clue. It's someone who he'll buy into and who they're who are on the same wavelength. You know, because people will say, Oh, McEnroe should coach this guy, or Becker should do this, or Serena coach that. It's not that simple, you know. I saw Novak said something yesterday that if he coached Kyrgios, he would have five major titles. Sorry. And if Novak could translate, or if he could beam down his essence into Nick, that's hundred percent true, and probably have a lot more. But if Novak struggles to get Nick to buy in, that would be a problem. So it doesn't really matter who's telling him what. I love Nick. Yeah. Nick too responded. I saw someone sent me a text. Nick responded like, ha ha, mate, that sounds great. Why don't we just go have a nice dinner instead? <laughs> so, I mean, Nick, 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 Nick knows that he's challenging to coach and he doesn't really want to have that scenario because he hasn't found the right balance of it yet. That's on him. So the dynamics of coaching is, first of all, how do you get the point you want to make across the way that player needs to hear it? You have to be able to get your point across, but if you want your job to last, it has to be the way they need to hear it. So they've got to be able to give you buy-in. That's the first thing. And everything after that's secondary. If you can do that, then you're going to have progress. And coaching dynamics change. When I started coaching with Taylor Taylor Fritz, he was a kid. He's a young man now. You know, I've been with, this is five years now. So when he was younger, I was much more dictatorial with my relationship with him mm. and I was, and he's a stubborn SOB. <laughs> he's one of the most stubborn human beings I've ever met in my life. And that's also what makes him a great tennis player. So mm. I didn't want to break down his stubbornness just for the sake of breaking it down. So I've had to build equity in the relationship and hopefully I've gained enough respect. I know I have, cause he does listen, but he's also earned my respect now too. So I have to listen to his philosophy so that there's a mutual buy-in. And so we triangulate it with Michael Russell. So all of us are on the same wavelength. Doesn't mean we don't have debates. Doesn't mean we don't disagree. We do, but we respect each other. But because we have that mutual buy-in and we've got that fluid conversation going that we're able to make impact and we're able to grow and have the relationship kind of grow fruit. And also he's able to do what he does best. So there are lots of permutations and evolutions that go on, but if I were to say one thing, it's 
how do you get the player to buy in to what you want to say? Oh, lovely advice. And perfect segue, Paul, uh, to just mention your book, uh, Coaching oh, for Life. Good, <laughs> Thank you so oh. much. You're a good book. Oh. You're a good oh, man. Coaching for Life, a guide to playing and thinking, being the best you can be. And listen, gang, this is my book. My wife made me do this because I was going to stop doing it because it was so frustrating and so hard to do. Mm. And when I got finished with it, it was so cathartic. I got to thank a lot of people that helped me. But most importantly, I got to realize that coaching tennis is absolutely a metaphor for life. And what it does, I used my experiences to talk about kind of what I saw in the great players and how it translates to existing in problem solving in life. And some of the things that you've asked today are really relevant to it. And and so it was really fun. I've been so blessed. I've had so many great people that have been in my life, my family, um, the people that I've coached or all of them are still some of my dearest friends. And my older brother, who without him, I never would have amounted to anything in tennis because he never gets enough credit. And the late, great Nick Volatari and the late, great Mike DePalmer Sr. Um, and my wife and kids. And, and so it's been a great go. And if you guys want to purchase it, go to iriebooks.com. I-R-I-E books.com. Um, I think it's on Amazon as well. And um, enjoy it. It's a good read and some good fun stories about the great players. So uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Most definitely. Awesome book. I put the links as well uh, in the chat so you all can just click those and check out Paul's book. So, Paul, uh, what a privilege. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Everybody also enjoyed it and really appreciates your great advice. So always a pleasure to see you. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll chat again soon. But thanks so much for your time. Maribon, you're a good man. Thanks for your patience. I know it's always com- it's always complicated, but you're always patient. So I enjoy our chats and look forward to next time. Thanks so much, Paul. All the best to you. Congrats today on uh, Taylor's win and talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with legendary coach Paul Anacone. Paul, thanks so much again for spending your time with us. Really appreciate it. And if you obtained value from this episode, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. Uh, we just find that Apple Podcasts, uh, it results in the biggest movement for the show in terms of its visibility and rankings and so forth. And so that just gives the most help to those who might not know about the show and who discover it um, because it's just more visible due to the reviews and ratings and such. So I really appreciate uh, your contributions and feedback. And I also want to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. And this one is by Roy T. Bennett. And Roy said, instead of worrying about what you cannot control, shift your energy to what you can create. So that is a really brilliant quote that we should all be uh, adhering to. So with that, thanks so much for listening to the show. And you know, as always, keep improving your tennis game, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is your faithful host, Mirban Aranchad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.